And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. And then kids, K through 2nd grade, if you uh, want to make your way to the story time, you can start heading, uh, heading that way. And uh, as they're going and you're turning, I want to start thinking about um, the ease in which you've transitioned into like the digital media communications kind of age and world. Um, I personally have had a hard time with a lot of it, and some of it's just demeanor. Like one of my best friends in my doctoral program, we used to call ourselves the young fogies because anything new, we just kind of resisted. I don't know what we are now. The young's gone, so I guess we're just the fogies. And I've finally resigned myself to, I think email is here to stay. Like I thought it was a fad, but it looks like it's just not going anywhere. So we're just going to have to submit ourselves and start communicating through email. And one thing Cynthia's been trying uh, to help me with for the last six, seven years is to improve in my text communication, like uh, strategy and uh, just what's required. So I think texts are a wonderful communicative uh, communication device for like facts. So for example, she'll send a text and it's like, hey, three exclamation points. I hope you've had a wonderful day, comma. My day has been wonderful. I can't wait to tell you about my conversation with our neighbor. Are you at the store? Yes. <laughs> Silence. What time will you be home? Six. Are you going to pick up milk? Do we need milk? And so we're trying to work out some so more. So if you ever receive a text from Cynthia and you think, wait, that doesn't really sound like her. It probably wasn't. It was probably me because she's busy and I'm trying to help her out. And so there was a season in our life where at one point we had four kids that were five and under and we were trying to get the church off the ground and things were just full. And so on multiple occasions, like she'd have but like both hands and both legs full with children and like her phone would just be blowing up and she's like, can you see who that is and uh, respond for me? So, okay, let me channel my inner uh, exclamation point, smiley face emoji self. <laughs> and so one time one of her friends, you know, was texting and she's like, who is that? I was like, it's your friend. I said, what does she say? So, she hasn't said anything. There's no words. She, she hasn't said anything. It's just emojis. So, well, what are they? Well, it's a, a baby, fireworks, a woman in a red dress dancing, champagne bottles, and wine glass. Why? Well, and she's like, oh, well, she, she had a hard day and just now got the kids down to bed and is about to celebrate. So, respond this way. It's like, how did you know that whole story from these little images? Got it. You go, girl, two exclamation points. Is that good enough? And so you can look in this section in Exodus from chapter 4, verse 18, all the way to 7, 7. It's one big, long section. And when I initially said on Monday that I was going to try and cover 4, 18, all the way to 7, 7, Cynthia lasted no way. And she's right. We're not going to get through the whole thing, so don't worry. But you could, if you want to think in emojis, it's not quite emojis, but you could take a couple kind of very small, short words, and this will give the summary of all that's happening here. The first word is go, the next word is yes, and then no, and then now. So for like four little word emojis, go, yes, no, now. 
And what we're going to see as we move through this is that in this whole section, God is going to continue. In one sense, the people have to come down to the very bottom. They have to hit rock bottom before he's going to lift them up. And we're going to see Moses and the people of Israel, their initial attempt to uh, obey God and to confront Pharaoh and to bring themselves out of Egypt is going to be this disastrous failure. And then it's out of the failure that we can begin to rebuild and, and move forward. So we're going to look at those two. This whole section kind of has two big movements from 418 all the way to 522 is getting uh, kind of Israel and Moses kind of their first uh, encounter with Pharaoh. And it's kind of the, 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 the fall. And then from 523 and then up to 77, it kind of culminates where now we're getting ready to be able to act. And in one sense, from chapter 1 all the way to 7-7, this is all preliminary. This is all getting you ready so you can now act. And in many ways, you wonder, man, things are taking a long time. Why is God moving on this timetable? It's one of the things we'll see. But we're going to look at that first kind of movement from 4-18 to 5-21 as Moses goes back to Egypt first. And in many ways, they have this kind of disastrous failure. It's kind of like, what happened? Then what is God going to do to pick them back up and kind of launch them forward? So let's look first kind of as they, as they go back, and we'll, we'll skim through. But starting in verse 18 of chapter 4, the key word all the way from 18 to 427 is this word, go. Now it's go time. God has come. He's confronted Moses. He's given his promises. He's given his game plan. He said, you need to do this. You're going to go get Aaron. You're going to do this. You're going to say this. He's given him the, the, the strategy, the playbook, what he's supposed to do. And now it's time to go. So Moses goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law. And there's kind of sequence and getting him ready to move back. Go. Go in peace. Go back to Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses in verse 21, now hear this. When you go back to Egypt, see to it that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So that's kind of the banner that's over this whole, and as we're reading through the whole thing, we need to have the proper context, because sometimes you can read the dynamic and the interaction, and it can make you really uncomfortable, but what you're witnessing, in essence, is a hostage situation where Pharaoh has God's firstborn son in captive and is holding him hostage and is not letting him go. So if you want like kind of the story, this is like Taken, where Liam Nielsen is going to get his daughter back. Or the movie, Sound of Freedom, where they're going to get the children back. So that's, that's the drama. So God's going to give him plenty of opportunities to let his people go, but he's not going to. So that's the, 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 the drama of the story. Now there's a strange story in, in verse 24. We talked about this some in men's Bible study, and, and maybe in the women's did too. We're not going to kind of touch on that. But and then kind of moving and starting in verse 27, now you have this kind of promising beginning. So everything begins well. So the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord. Now listen to what is kind of the key that he wants to highlight is what caused the success initially. Listen to how faithful they were 
to do all that the Lord said and all that the Lord told him to do. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he did the signs in the sight of all the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their head and worshipped. So it's like, all right, finally. Now we're finally ready to go. For these, all these years, at least 80 years since the beginning of chapter 1, we've been waiting and the people have been oppressed and they've been under difficulty and hardship. And the Lord said, he's about to act. Now we're ready to go. And Moses and Aaron, they both do exactly what the Lord has said. They follow his instructions that he gave them in chapter 3, verse 16. And then in 4, verse 15, they follow it to the letter. And then the people, they believe. Moses didn't think they would believe and respond. They do. But as you're reading, one of the things comes like, uh, what did they actually believe? They'd be a little skeptical about the depth and their durability of their belief. Maybe on the surface, it seems maybe it's a little too quick, a little too impulsive, a little too easy. One of the questions is, all right, how long will this belief last? And if you think about Jesus' parable of the four soils, this is kind of an interesting image that's over this whole story because it's a battle. Between, between God, Yahweh, and Pharaoh, who represents the evil one, and God's son, and then the son of the serpent. And the whole battle is over. Are you going to listen to and hear and obey the word? The word is going to be scattered. And then what happens in each of the locations? You know, sometimes the evil one wants to just snatch it so you don't hear it. Other times it kind of comes in and it grows quickly, but there's no root. And when the sun, persecution comes, it, it chokes it. So think, all right, what type of, they hear the word of the Lord, but what type of belief is there? You know, as we go through chapter 5, one of the things we'll see, there's, there's no such thing as untested faith. So trials are going to come, and how do they respond? Like Peter will tell people in 1st and 2nd Peter, don't think these trials are strange, that they're unique. This is normal for the Christian life. But everything begins well. So it's kind of, you almost want to think about it as like a 10-round Maybe a 12-round boxing match between God and Pharaoh. You know, in one sense, round one goes to Moses and the people. They, they start out really well, but then there's kind of this disastrous turn in the middle. Notice the first encounter with Pharaoh. And afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, that's the name Yahweh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, or who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So now here's the, like, the challenge has been accepted. It's been thrown down. The bell has rung. Pharaoh said, who, who is the Lord? Now, this is not an atheistic question, like, who is God? He doesn't exist. This is a jurisdiction question, like, who, like, do you know where you are? I, I don't know who this Yahweh is. That might be fine for you Hebrew people, wherever you are. But here, I'm the Lord. I'm the king. I'm the one who doesn't uh, receive commands. I give them. See, in the ancient world is a polytheistic world, and you had deities depending on your geographic location. 
we also live in a polytheistic world and we have deities depending on your personal uh, inclinations. So we think, you know, we're all our own pharaohs. Who is the Lord that he's telling me what I should do? So now it's set. And then notice how he responds, or notice how they, they come back. Actually, let's just pause and think there about that first initial emphasis where they go. They move forward, but there's so many things in this first part of the story, you're just supposed to say, huh, that's interesting. You know, we kind of joke that you know, great Bible study begins with the phrase, huh, that's interesting. And look at that. And one thing that's just kind of interesting is up until this point, every action in chapter 3 and chapter 4 has kind of had the prelude, and the Lord said to Moses, go here. And the Lord said to Moses, this is what you will say. And the Lord said to Aaron, go out to your brother. But then there's no, and the Lord said. Just kind of this indefinite afterwards at some point. So do they, they go, and are they kind of emboldened by the initial success? Like we went to the people, we went to the elders, I went to Aaron, and everything is going well, and they're starting to feel that success. Do they move forward without the divine instructions? All right, who is this Pharaoh now? Remember, this is probably Moses' in essence adopted uncle. So they would know each other. And then notice the interaction. It's they act, Moses, Aaron, they act abruptly. Sometimes they act rudely. We'll compare what they were commanded and what they say. They begin to freelance in the Lord's name, and they quote him incorrectly, and they depart considerably from God's command and instructions. You'll notice, do we have the slide where we can pull up the comparison of like 318? Sorry, I forgot to check if that was in there before. Do you, do you know if that was in there? So they're 318, and what I, I put on slide is you, you can at least hear it, what God commands them, and then you can hear where they slightly deviate. So just listen to verse chapter 3, verse 18, and I'll kind of emphasize it so you hear the things they don't do. So, And you shall come. This is God giving Moses instructions. When you go to Pharaoh, this is what you will say. When you come, you and all the elders... Of Israel, so he's supposed to bring the elders unto the king of Egypt. You shall say to him, The Lord, Yahweh, but then you say, The God of the Hebrews. So you need to define who, who we are. He's not going to have a context for who we are. It's the God of the Hebrews has, and this is an interesting word. We translate it has, has met with us, but really it's, it's the word kind of has alighted upon us. It's strange because one of the, the great deities in Egypt is the sun god Ra. And so it's this idea that the God has, has shown his light upon us. We have seen his light. And I think one of the things God is doing is, in essence, saying you're going to have to communicate in terms that they can understand. So this God has, has, has lit himself upon us. He has alighted upon us. He has met with us. And now let us go. And in English, we translate like, please. But it's this, uh, the old King James kind of gets it, we pray thee. You know, it's very, uh, a humble uh, request. We pray thee a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So all the places that are kind of uh, italicized are things that they don't say in that first encounter or things that they say different. 
So they neglected the command of God to bring the elders. They speak of Yahweh, but no Egyptian would have known that name. They were told to say the God of Hebrews, but they say the God of Israel. They were told to request, but instead of requesting, they demand. It was supposed to be for three days. They demand indefinitely. It just seems uh, they have little appreciation for the, the delicacy of what uh, diplomacy requires. And maybe this was some of Moses' frustrations because he told God, look, I'm not a man of words. I don't know how to do this back and forth. And so maybe he didn't try. Maybe he didn't do whatever. He doesn't listen, and it doesn't go well for them. And then we hear Pharaoh's first words in verse 2. And the first words of characters going through the, the Torah or the Pentateuch are pretty important. And the Pharaoh's very first words are no and no. So he's the, the no man. No and no. And this is going to set up the, the tension. I know I do not know this God you're talking about. And no, I will not let you go. And then notice they kind of scramble in verse 3 and they try again. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. So they get back to a little closer to the original command. The God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. So they get a little close, but then they add this extra kind of extra weight. And uh, see, maybe they're trying to appeal to Pharaoh's self-interest. And it's no surprise. He's not moved. He can kind of sense, I guess, weakness when he sees it. And then now notice what happens because Pharaoh then goes on the offensive for the next 21 Verses, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens that same day. So he wastes no time. He springs into action. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people in the foreman, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straws for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made, in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. And then verse 9 is really kind of the center of the whole structure of this chapter. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to these lying words. See, the whole battle is this battle for whose word will you believe? And Pharaoh's it representing the serpent, his primary goal is once the word of promise comes to snatch it up and not let you hear it. Do not pay any regard to these lying words. He is Satan's man to snatch up the word. Notice how he creates seven through eight, these harsh conditions, then follows them up with impossible demands. And then that gets followed up in 10 through 14 with physical afflictions. And then it brings the people, skip down to 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. Notice, who are they crying to now? See, the whole thing turned in chapter, the end of chapter 1 when they began to cry out to the Lord. And now the Lord comes to act. But now they're crying out to Pharaoh. They came to cry out to Pharaoh. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. And they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is your, with your own people. I mean, do they assume that Pharaoh doesn't know? They think, oh, let's take it. He doesn't know what his people are doing to us. And he says, but he said, you are idle. 
You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. And when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And so they met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. So just notice how the serpent speaks. Notice what the serpent does is he blames them. Here's the problem. You're lazy. That's why he creates uh, unrealistic expectations and demands and then blames them for not fulfilling them. And then the whole key is to kind of crush their spirit. That's the point. You know, they had this word of promise, but he's trying to snatch it out. And then notice how the people respond. They cry out, but it's to Pharaoh, not to the Lord. And then they start pointing fingers and placing blame, but it's not where blame should go. Notice who do they blame? They blame Moses and Aaron. And if you wouldn't have said anything, it wouldn't have happened. So they're blaming, but they're blaming the wrong person. They call out to the Lord again in verse 21, but it's not for him to act. It's to call down judgment on Moses and on Aaron. And then notice what does Moses do? He also starts to shift the blame. And who does he blame? He blames God. And as you hear the, the sense of futility and failure and the anguish, why? Why have you done this? Why have you done evil to this people? That's, that's an interesting word. One of the interesting things we run through the whole Exodus, how often Moses calls the Israelites this people. He's, it takes him a really long time to consider himself one of them. But why have you done this to this people? And the very core accusation is you have failed to keep your word. You said you were going to do something and you haven't done it. And it's interesting, but till now we've seen Moses, he's only said two, th we've only heard him say two things in the land of Egypt. And the first thing was when he confronted two of his fellow uh, Israelites who were beating each other. And he said, why? Why are you doing this? Don't you know? And then here he speaks to God, Why? Why are you doing this? So chapter 5, we have this movement, or the end of chapter 4, or chapter 5 begins with this buoyant hope and this worshipful gratitude where people are thrilled and excited and God is about to do something amazing and something special. And then we end chapter 5 where everybody is despondent and discouraged and you have simmering anger with one another and even with God and their easy confidence has been turned into despair. And as we think about this, what you know, one thing I kept coming back to this week is it's worth just kind of taking an autopsy of this failure. You know, I guess if there's a formula for success, there's probably a formula for failure, and you can often learn more in your losses or in your failures 
than you can in your wins and your successes. And it's worth looking at chapter 4 and just saying, all right, was there a certain formula here? What happened that led to this point? You can ask why. And some of it is just a hunch, but it does seem that the first part of this exchange takes place primarily on the human level. God seems to be silent in the first interactions. The, speak, the people spoke about God, but not to him. And then Moses and Aaron both relied on their own speech. They took liberties in what they said in God's name. They were overconfident. They didn't perform the signs and wonders that he told them to perform when they came before Pharaoh. And then in one sense, they didn't believe him when he said, this is going to be long, and this is going to be a hard process filled with many failures. It seems like they wanted easy redemption, easy restoration, but uh, didn't want to hit rock bottom. You know, one of the hard lessons you learn in the Christian life is that when Jesus tells you, apart from me, you can do nothing, that's not hyperbole. Like, he means it, and you'll often go through a whole series and cycles of things in your life to continually remind you that that is true. And so from the Israelites and Moses' perspective, they get done with chapter 5, and it's like, this is, this is terrible. Everything we've done has, has just fallen through and failed. Now, what are we going to do? So a couple of the pieces, just we got to fill in the blanks. We got false first formula for... Uh, the failure is false expectations. You know, their expert expectations were false. Maybe here's kind of the expectations are false because they weren't really listening. You know, what did they expect to happen? Did they think that Pharaoh's hard heart would be an easy kind of out for them? In chapter 4, 31, they believed, but they hadn't really listened. And you think about your own life. How many things uh, have come because I had false expectations and weren't, haven't really listened to what God says or Jesus says is the way to follow him. And it's true not just of the people, but of Moses. He was surprised, even almost looks traumatized by his failure. And I just wonder if he had thought that finally, at last, after 40 years of the initial disaster and wandering in the wilderness, it was time for me to come back and I would be on the side of victory this time. I would win. But he, too, hadn't really listened or paid close enough attention to the voice of the Lord, hadn't listened to what the Lord said about Pharaoh. And I just wonder if right now you're wrestling with, in any area of your life, certain false um, or expectations that haven't been met. You thought, man, I, thought, I really thought this job would be different. Or I thought this time, living in this place, it would be different, or I thought marriage would be different, or I thought my family would be different, or I thought ministry would be different, or I thought this would be different. You know, many people reject God because they're naive about what he has said and what they should be experiencing. So you say misplaced expectations, but then <clears throat> misplaced blame. You know, one of the fascinating things is how blame gets thrown around, but none of it gets pointed in the right place. It all gets misdirected. They're really good at pointing fingers. The problem is all the fingers are pointing in the wrong place. That's what can happen so easily. And then presumptuous actions. You know, as you're going through this with Moses, there's two kind of 
ditches you can fall off on. On the one hand is presumptuous action where you just act and you're presumptuous on what God has said he's going to do and how he'll help you. And the other is like a passive resignation where you don't do anything. So it's like, how do you find that, the balance between the two? So here you see presumptuous action. Some of the things that they did, uh, their, their delegation was wrong. God had told Moses, take you, Aaron, and all the elders. It was meant to be corporate. And then their whole approach in interacting with Pharaoh was supposed to be wrong. It was supposed to be couched in understandable terms, making a moderate and limited request with courteous speech. But he adopted like authoritarian approach, alienated Pharaoh with incomprehensible talk and set loose to the word of the Lord. Both in matters great and small, where he added to what God said and subtracted to what God said and so had in some sense doomed themselves for disappointment. And the terminology was wrong and adds. So you see false, false approach. So what do we do? How do you handle kind of failures? You know, I think Moses' first failure was to rush into action without the direct commission of the Lord. And then his second failure came through that he possessed the word but didn't fully obey it or hear it. Now chapter 6 and 7 is all about how God is going to then pick them up, put them back on their feet and say, all right, now you're finally ready. Because in many ways, Moses and the people haven't hit bottom yet. And they were, they were resisting. But then in chapter 6, there's this turn. So there's now. But the Lord said to Moses, now. Now. One commentator said, this is the most important word in the whole book. Because now things can turn. They finally are ready. See, right now, Pharaoh is strutting around, feeling himself, thinking he's high and mighty. Israel is at rock bottom, and Moses is despairing of himself and his entire mission. It looks utterly hopeless. Now we're ready. Now we can get going. And notice what the Lord says. is a beautiful reaffirmation of who he is and what he's going to do. Start in verse 2, it's framed from verse 2 all the way to verse 8. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. <clears throat> and then he moves him through these three key areas. If, if the, the first part's the failure formula, this is the faith formula about what are you supposed to know and believe. And in 2 through 4, it's remember who I am. Do not forget. Remember, gratitude. Look to the past. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived and are sojourners. So he reminds them of, of what he's done in the past. I am, I revealed myself to your forefathers as God Almighty, meaning I am sufficient for the personal inadequacies that they felt even though all those are kind of personal. So Abraham, he is, I have told him you're going to be the father of many nations, but you can't have children. That seems to be a problem. Don't worry, because I am God Almighty. And so he reveals that to each of the patriarchs. You know, uh, to Joseph, I have promised to place you in a certain place, but right now your brothers wanted to murder you. They've thrown you into a pit, and you've been sold into slavery. Doesn't look good. Don't worry. Because I am God Almighty. But what he tells Moses is that I revealed that to them, but now you're going to see something even greater. 
And I think the point that God is making here is not that they never used that name, but they didn't properly understand this is what it means. So he points them first, gratitude. Remember the past. Remember what I've said. Remember what I've promised. But then notice in verse 5 how he turns them to the present. Confident in the present. The present is you need to know that Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I have heard and I have remembered. This is not going on without my knowledge. It's not happening where I'm not aware. I am aware, and you need to be confident that I see and I am acting, even though you can't see it. And then he gives them this beautiful thing that he points them forward to in anticipation. This is what I'm going to do. And further frames it by a declaration of his name. I am the Lord. I am the Lord, and then there's sevenfold attributes, seven verbs that he says, I am about to, I will. And the first three deal with liberating them from the, the tyranny of sin and its power. And then the middle two talk about the point of bringing them into a relationship with themselves. And then the final two are a promise for the land and location to create a place where they can dwell in peace and safety so they can enjoy that relationship. So notice the, the movement. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out of the land, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I'm about to set you free, redemption, liberation. You will be set free. And then I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you for your possession, for I am the Lord. So the whole point of their restoration of Moses, he gets picked back up when he gets a full revelation of who God is and what he's promised to do. God's point in this is, Moses, do not despair because I have been waiting all along just for this moment. I have been waiting to make myself more fully known and to begin to deliver on all of my old promises to the patriarchs. I have been waiting for you to recognize that you cannot do it on your own and you will need me to act. I have been waiting for you to recognize fully your need for help. I have been waiting on them to cry out from despair in their bondage. And what you will learn is that it is the Lord who keeps his word in verse 4 who feels all of our woes in verse 5, who sets us free, who then brings us close to him, who will then lead us home. Faithfulness, empathy, deliverance, intimacy, inheritance, they're all embraced by knowing this is what it means to know the name that I am the Lord. So the way he redeems him, restores him, is turn away from yourself and look to me. And then now the question we can get, are we ready to move? And we'll see next week as they begin to start and get going. But here's where we'll stop for this time. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this declaration and this sevenfold promise of who you are and what you're going to do. So I pray for anyone here who's coming to this room and they feel they can sympathize with Moses or they can sympathize with the Israelites where they feel that they've been beaten down by false expectations where I thought, I thought you said, and I thought things would be different. I thought things would go a different way. Pray that you would encourage them 
if that false expectations comes from being naive and not listening to your word, convict them and speak truth to them, but ultimately point us to the reality of who you are and these strong promises. Help us to know that you're one who keeps your word, that you feel our woes when we cry out to you, that you've come to truly set us free and bring us close to yourself. We ask that you do all these things through Christ our Lord. It's his name we pray. Amen. You know, each week we come to the table, and the promise that God gives to Moses, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set you free from the ways that sin has bound you, as represented by Pharaoh and actual slavery, and then I'm going to bring you into my presence so we can dwell together. That's the whole point. Deliverance is so they can dwell together. And each week we come to the Lord's table because we symbolize both of those wonderful movements that the the cup represents the blood that is God setting us free, bringing forgiveness so that we can be forgiven of our sins. And the bread is a great symbolism that represents God's welcome where he says, come to my table and feast with me so I can dwell with you. So here at Trinity, we'll have four stations. You come, we'll have a gluten-free station in the back corner. And then once our servers are in place, you come and you can live and remind yourself of these things.